Uh, make sure you look at your bulletin with all the things that are coming up, especially the Christmas calendar. There are a number of things happening, uh, some for various uh, groups, but some for everybody. And let me uh, tell you just a minute about Christmas Day. Christmas Day is on a Sunday this year. It's on a Sunday every five or six years or so, uh, this Sunday, or this Christmas, what we're doing is we're going to take our Sunday morning service, and we're going to move that to Christmas Eve evening. We have a Christmas Eve service anyway, but we're going to expand that Christmas Eve service this year. It'll be uh, very much like a Christmas, uh, like a, a, a regular Sunday morning service, but it will be very obviously Christmas-focused. And at that service, and actually at the, uh, here the Sunday before that the 25th, we're going to provide you a worship guide for your family, so that on Sunday morning, Christmas Day, uh, wherever you may be, whether it's at your home here in town as you get up with kids like we do, or if you're traveling and going somewhere for Christmas, you can take that worship guide and you can be the church right there in your home around your fireplace or your space heater or, or air conditioner if it's 80 degrees like it could be on Christmas Day for us. Um, and you can go through that, somebody will take the lead on that, and you will go through that, and you will lead your family in worship there around your tree or your, your table, however you want to do it. We want to provide that for you so that you can take that, that worship time and, like I said, be the church with your family at your home and uh, come and join us that Christmas Eve. So we'll have no services that Christmas day. We want you to enjoy uh, that time with your family, but we don't want you to forget why we celebrate to begin with, so we're providing you with that worship guide. Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Thanksgiving during church crisis. Last week we looked at Thanksgiving during national upheaval. We talked about how we aren't truly experiencing national upheaval, though some people may feel like in, in their world it is, but we're not. We, uh, we transition power. That's the, one of the beauties of the U.S. We go to the polls, we vote, and power transitions. Uh, no, no armies taking over, a, uh, a Capitol building, no one being uh, ousted or anything like that. The, our forefathers set it up in a great way, and we get to experience that still now here 200 and oh nearly 50 years after they set it all up. But it may feel like that. This morning, we're looking at Thanksgiving during church crisis, and we're not in a church crisis. There's, there's no crisis happening in our church right now, but I will say that it is my opinion that every church is in crisis. Every church is going through crisis right now. Some may be having uh, minor disagreements Maybe it doesn't look like a crisis to, to folks on the outside, but the folks on the inside, it is a crisis, these, these minor things going on. Some are splitting. Some churches right now, this morning, are meeting with half the people they met with last Sunday because they split over something. And it may be something as important as the color of the walls in the bathroom. Um, it may very well be that. Uh, but they are experiencing crisis. Some churches have an image problem in the community. I would dare say that that is a crisis. If, if your community has one image, one picture of your church, and it is a negative picture, 
that's a crisis that the church needs to overcome. Uh, for example, uh, someone was asked here in the last couple of weeks or so why she didn't go on and join our church. Her answer, because you people fight too much. That's, that's an image in the community. That's a crisis. That's a crisis for our church, I believe. So we see that there is, there's always a crisis going on. And I would even dare say that if there's even none of that, no disagreements, no split, no uh, community uh, issue, no, no poor image in the community, there is a true crisis that is always raging in the church, and that is a spiritual war. Every day that we meet, there's a crisis. Every day that we meet, every time our doors open, every time the gospel is shared, is a crisis because there are people who need to hear that gospel. But there is a spiritual realm where a fight is going on to make sure that person does not hear the gospel. And maybe the devil uses minor disagreements or a church split or an image problem in the community to keep that. But that is a spiritual war. No matter how we look at it, no matter what the problem is, it's always a spiritual war. The true crisis is that no church is where it should be. Show me a church that's growing. Show me a church that is excited about sharing the gospel. Show me a church that is doing incredible things, and I will show you a church that still is not where it should be. If you talk to that pastor, if you talk to the staff, if you talk to leaders in the church, you'll see they'll, they'll give you a list. Yeah, these things are going great, but right now we still need to work on these things because no church has made it. That's a crisis. Because if we are, are not the church that we're supposed to be, that means we have work to do. That means that we have things to do. The true crisis is that we have a lot to do, and churches, for the most part, in a lot of ways, aren't doing it. But what do we do in crisis? Well, this passage, just like the passage we looked at from Jeremiah chapter 30 last week, this passage from Colossians chapter 3 tells the church what to do in a time of crisis. It tells us that we need to obey and we need to be thankful. This passage is really divided into to two passages, two thoughts. It's, it's, it's one thought uh, in these uh, five verses, but it can be divided between 12 through 15 and 16 through 17. The first three verses are about how the church should respond, what the church should be doing. We can label that as obedience, obeying, doing the right things. But then uh, verses 16 and 17 talk about thankfulness. Paul tells us three times in these two, two verses to be thankful, to give thanks. And we're going to see that as we work through it this morning. Read along with me, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control your hearts. Be thankful. Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude or thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving 
thanks to God the Father through him. We're going to look at four imperatives in this verse. This is, this is how you kind of need to break down a verse uh, and see what it's saying to us. What are the commands? What is it telling us? Those are, what are the main verbs is what we're taught in seminary. Well, there are four imperative verbs in this passage. Put on in verse 12, control in verse 15, be thankful in verse 15, and dwell in verse 16. Those are the, the, the four imperatives. Now, Michael, where are you getting that there's a church in crisis? This just sounds like what we're supposed to do. Well, it was certainly, there was certainly a crisis in the church in Colossae. Not to the uh, extent that we see in like the church in Corinthians when Paul wrote those letters. Not, not that big an issue, but there was certainly something going on. And we can see Paul hint at that. And we do this a lot. It, with the letters that Paul wrote, he doesn't always just come out and label the, the, the issue. He did in Galatians. Galatians is clear. Galatians, he's so, um, I won't say angry, I'll say upset and forceful with them, that in Galatians, he foregoes the whole introduction where he says, peace be to you, good, to, I pray for you every day. With Galatians, he gets right into the point. He doesn't do that with Colossians. He, it's, it's a softer cell here, but there's still a crisis. Chapter 2, verses 8 and following but we see it particularly mentioned in verses 8 and 16. Paul said, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. So people were coming in and teaching things, tradition and their ideas, and saying, this is what you should be doing, this is what you should be learning, and it was based not on God's word, but what they thought felt good. Verse 16 Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So someone else was coming in, or maybe the same people were coming in and saying, okay, these things you do, you're not following the rules right. You're not doing it the way it's supposed to be done. You're not doing it the way we did it in, in, on the Lord's Day when I was growing up, etc., etc. So there was a crisis going on. We might label this the, uh, the minor disagreements that we talked about at the beginning, but nonetheless, it was a crisis. And so Paul addresses it. It's enough of a crisis that he wrote a letter. But his letter is about obedience and giving thanks here in this passage. Those four imperatives that he tells us. That first imperative there we see in verse uh, 12. I think that may say verse 14 on the slide. If it does, I'm, I apologize. We're in verse 12. It says, Therefore God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion. Now, this put on, this imperative verb, actually comes at the beginning of the sentence in verse 12 in Greek. So the first thing he says in this passage, in this thought is, put on, and then he describes what you're putting on. The, the verb tense in this it implies a decisive, settled act. So what he means is, once you've put on, you're done. There are a number of times in the Bible where we are to be filled with the Spirit, for example. And it's, the, the verb is actually continuously be filled with the Spirit. It's, an, it's a continual action. It's something we do regularly, daily maybe, or maybe multiple times of a, a day, depending on what we go through. This act, putting on what he's going to talk about here in a minute, is a decisive, settled act. It is something that has happened and is done, but it has ongoing consequences. That's the verb. What he's telling us to put on here in the next uh, few words are all attributes 
of Jesus and or God. So much so that in Romans, Paul, rather than uh, delimiting it too much and listing it out, rather than saying, put on this, this, and this, and this, in Romans, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever his attributes were or are, that's what we're supposed to put on. In, in, in the letter to uh, the, the church in Colossae, he wants to uh, delineate somewhat some things that they need to put on. Maybe, and I don't think maybe, I think definitely, he needs to list these because the people, the, the crisis the church was experiencing at this time, those people needed these things more than anything else. He could have said, put on the Lord Jesus, and they would have said, we do. We have. We've done that. Paul wants them to understand, okay, you think you have, but you need to put on these things. Writing to the Romans, he wasn't addressing an issue. He was explaining Christianity. So it was very easy for him, simpler for him to say, put on the Lord Jesus. So he says, put on these, uh, these five things in verse 12 that we're to put on. Heartfelt compassion is the first one. Uh, literally, compassion from the bowels. Now, uh, the, the Old Testament they, world, they, they, the heart was not the seat of the emotions. It was the bowels. Now, it, 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 it makes all of our love songs sound real interesting if we change that, so we're not going to. But if you think about it, where, we get a, a flutter in our heart, but really, where's that flutter? Our tummies. And, and you know, that, that's... Uh, that's where we feel our emotions. So that's what the depth from, from the deepest part of you have compassion. Uh, actually, the word is mercy. The word is not giving what is deserved. Not giving what is deserved. So in your dealings, remember he's writing to a church, to church people who are dealing with church people. He's writing to a crisis. So he's telling them, in your dealings with uh, each other, chosen ones, holy and loved, called out people, have heartfelt compassion, have mercy for each one of them. The same kind of mercy that God has for us when he does not give us what we deserve. Kindness is the second thing he tells them. Have kindness. This is fruit of the Spirit. Uh, as a matter of fact, the next four uh, items that he tells us to have are going to be fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5.22. He's not going to list the entire tree or vine of, of the fruit of the Spirit. He's only going to list a few of them, but these four, next four will come from that. Uh, rather, I'm sorry, the next uh, three of the next four will come from that. Kindness, fruit of the Spirit. Kindness from God. Why? Why does God give us kindness? Because he's kind? Well, certainly. But he doesn't just give us kindness because, well, just because. He gives us kindness for a purpose, kindness uh, to bring about repentance. That's why God is kind. That's why God, God's kindness leads to mercy. Mercy, not giving us what we deserve. That kindness is what leads to mercy. That kindness says, I'm not going to take them out right now because I'm going to give them an opportunity to repent. It was kindness that sent Jonah to Nineveh. It was kindness that didn't just wipe out Nineveh because they deserved it. Certainly they did. But instead said, I'm going to send a prophet of mine to them to preach a message of repentance, to preach a message of, of coming destruction, coming judgment. 
and give them an opportunity to repent. That was kindness that God had. That's the kind of kindness that we have. Uh, often the, the, it is said that the church is the only structure, organizational structure, the only place where we shoot our wounded. We just saw a uh, uh, heart, heartbreak ridge. Hacksaw Ridge. Heartbreak Ridge, I think, is another war movie, if I'm not mistaken. Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, that guy saved, in one night, saved 75 men from that, that, that battlefield. Just running back and forth and getting them. No, uh, no weapon. I don't think I'm giving anything away here. You can look it up in the history books. He did that. He, he, he didn't go around and say, ooh, he looks pretty bad. That's what we do in our churches. Wow, they're having it pretty rough. I think we should beat up on them some. That'll, well, it won't make them feel better, but at least maybe they'll shut up. Maybe they'll move on. Maybe they'll go away. It's not kindness to shoot our wounded. It's not merciful to shoot our wounded. And even when they, it's somebody that doesn't agree with us. It's not kind to shoot them. It's kind to say, you know what, you're wrong, but I want to say this in kindness to see repentance. The third thing we see is not uh, one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's humility. Now, humility was not an admirable trait, not an admirable characteristic in the Greek world. Uh, you, actually, if you called somebody humble, you were calling them a bad word. That, that was never a good thing for, this, uh, for society, Roman society, Hellenistic, really, Greek society uh, at this time. You were, you were seen as weak. You were seen as someone who, who would not stand up for himself, would not uh, uh, take on something that was, uh, was wrong, or, or not even wrong, just against what you thought. It, strong people were the ones who, who were admired. Those who would stand up and say what they thought. Does that sound like a, a, a campaign we've heard recently? It we, we, we admire that, but what the Bible says is to be humble. Paul says, put on humility. Put on the humility of Jesus. Jesus is described as gentle and lowly in heart. That does not sound like someone who beats his chest or her chest and says, you know, dang what everybody else says, this, it's all about me. God says through Paul, have humility, put on humility, put on kindness, put on heartfelt compassion. And remember, we're not talking just about, though we do need to remember our influence and our, uh, our relationship with unbelievers. He is talking about people in the church, dealing with people in the church. Humility. Gentleness is the next one, fruit of the spirit. Meekness is actually this word that is usually translated meek. Meek we think of as weak, and we think of it incorrectly when we think of it as weak. It is strength under control is what meekness is. Jesus, the meekest person that ever lived, and yet the most powerful person that ever lived. He had everything at his fingers, fingertips, literally everything at his fingertips. When they uh, beat him, he could have he didn't even have to snap his fingers. He didn't have to wink. He, he barely had to think, and he could have wiped out the whole uh, 
guard at the praetorium. They could have, he could have taken out everybody. He could have come off the cross, healed his own wounds. He could have done all that stuff because he had the power, and yet he didn't because he was meek. He was gentle. There was concern for the person who was doing the thing that was offensive, even when the, the person was doing wrong. Gentleness. Even when the person is wronging me, I deal gently with that person. That's the call here that Paul says when he says put on Jesus. Last one is patience. This too is a fruit of the Spirit. This is patience toward believers and unbelievers alike. Patience. How many of you have ever prayed for patience? And then how many of you have ever regretted it? You, you, you do. You, you pray for patience and you get toddlers. Um, that's, and I, I, we didn't pray, pay, pray for patience, uh, but we got the toddlers anyway. And they're, and they're teaching it to us, or at least they're trying to. Patience, that is, okay, the, you, you're, you're getting it wrong again. Yes, you, you, you're, you're disobedient again, but we're going to teach you again and talk to you again and again. And again, and again, we are we're patient. All the while, so we've got our, our, our uh, imperative verb put on. Then we uh, get to verses, uh, verse 13, where it says, accepting one another and forgiving one another. These aren't uh, action verbs. These are clearly, in our text, ing verbs, participles. So when, while you are putting on or when you, are put, when you put on, don't forget to continually be uh, accepting one of each other. So you've put these things on. You've put on Christ. You, you put on patience and humility and gentleness and kindness and heartfelt compassion. But in doing that, do not forget to constantly be accepting or enduring of one another. Follows right after patience, doesn't it? doesn't it? If I have to be patient with people that upset me, or if I have to be patient with people that annoy me, or I have to be patient with people that anger me, the, the reason I can be patient with those people is twofold. I'm accepting them, I am enduring them, similar to the way Christ endured the cross. They're not my cross to bear, but I do need to endure them as he did. And forgiving them, that word forgiving means giving freely. How many times are we told to forgive people? I hear the mumbles. 70 times 7, that's right. And, and we know that does not mean 490 times, right? You've heard it, you've, you've heard it explained enough that it, it was not, at number 491, you're done. You don't have to forgive them. No, it was, it was an, an idea of an infinite number. Because, you know, Peter thought he was going to, seven times? I'll forgive him seven times, God. I will. I mean, Jesus. Isn't that good of me, Jesus? And Jesus says, oh, not seven, but 70 times seven. Uh, uh, infinite. And you don't stop. You never stop forgiving. And, and can you just see Peter deflate? Like, oh, man. One of the funniest cartoons I've seen is uh, the, the disciples being told by Jesus, I tell you not to forgive seven times, but 70 times seven. And one of the disciples, he's got the little thought bubbles going up, and he says, oh, man, not bad enough we have to be obedient. Now we have to do math, too? You don't. 
That's the beauty of it. You don't have to do math. I had to actually think. 490, yeah, I was doing the math in my head. You don't have to because it's not a number. It's an attitude. We are accepting, we're enduring each other, we are forgiving each other, no matter what is done to you. Did you hear that? Because you know what? I put my Savior on a cross. As certainly as I stood there and nailed those nails into his wrists, as certainly as I shoved the spear in his side, as certainly as if I had slung the flagellum on his back, and peeled his skin away and his muscles away, as surely as it was me right there doing the physical acts, I killed my Savior with my sin. And you know what he did to me? Forgave me. Endured me. You know what he still does today? Though I I, I wonder, and, and this picture I think is probably unbiblical. Okay, let me just put that out there for you now. I don't think we can defend it biblically. Uh, I, I don't know, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add that caveat just in case. But I, I, I envision every time I sin, my, my vision is Jesus just rubbing those wounds. Almost a, you know, you know how you do that? If I, I cut my finger when I was, gosh, eight, nine years old, peeling an apple. Actually, as a matter of fact, I was slicing the apple in half. You know, dummy me, instead of, it, it was caught on a seed as I cut it in half, and rather than put the knife in and pull, smart people do, I took the knife and pushed. Well, it got through the seed, um, and then right into my finger. And it, it got almost to the bone. I got three stitches, the only stitches I've ever had in my life. But I cut some nerves in there. So right now, I can, I can rub this little scar on my finger. You can barely see the scar. It just looks like where my, my knuckle bends. But I can rub it right now, and I feel it. I feel the difference in the nerves. And if I'm doing something, and I bump that, I bump that cut, it does not feel good. So it's kind of a, 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 a subconscious thing that I do sometimes, that I just I mess with that little uh, that little scar there. I can feel it. I feel the difference. Sometimes some guys do that with their wedding rings. Have you noticed people that, that twirl their wedding, wedding rings? I do that sometimes. Not really thinking about it. It's just something I do. I wonder if that's what Jesus does when I sin. Not really thinking about it. And I, I realize I'm giving Jesus here a lot of human characteristics that he doesn't have. But I wonder if it's just, he just rubs them. Like I said, probably not biblical but it lets me think about it. Because I, I think about it. I, I think about those scars. And yet he endures. Does he, does he still feel that pain when I sin? I, I don't know. Because I, I, I know I'm clean. I know I'm forgiven. But I just wonder. But that's what he does. He, he accepts. He endures. So, so what scar do you have? What, what wound do you have caused by someone, and particularly I'm talking about right now in the four walls of this building, what wound, what scar do you have that you, every time you're around that person, you, you, you feel that wound? Well, you need to endure, accept, and, and you need to forgive. You need to give freely. Then he says at the end of it, above all, the end of, uh, in verse 14 rather, uh, above all, put on love. Now, actually what the Greek says here is above all, love. The verb put on isn't in there. If, 
If you have put on in your translation, then it's, excuse me, it's probably in italics because it, it, it goes back to that verb at the beginning. So he's saying, yes, put on love. It's just not there. Love makes the other five to seven, the five characteristics, the five uh, adjectives, and, and uh, the, or, uh, yeah, yeah uh, the five, uh, five nouns and the two participle verbs, accepting and forgiving. Love makes those things work. Love is what brings them together. Why can I have heartfelt compassion for someone? Because I love them. Why can I have kindness, feel kindness towards someone? Because I love them. Why do I approach things in humility? Because I love them. Why am I gentle toward people with whom I may not agree? Because I love them. Why do I have patience with people that dadgummit get on my nerves? Because I love them. Why am I accepting? Why am I forgiving? Because I love them. This is not my love. This is not your love. This is not a love you get just cause. This isn't something that just, you know, well, I'm just a loving person, so I do. No, you don't. You love the people you love, but let me tell you, you don't love the people you don't love. But when Jesus takes over, when we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, then we love people who are unlovable. Then we love people who don't love us back. And we handle them in a different way than we would in any, uh, in any, in any other circumstance. We see, love is what holds a church together. A church in crisis overcomes that crisis primarily by love. Then Jesus goes on, or, or Paul rather, goes on, Jesus through Paul, and says in verse 15, let the peace of the Messiah to which you are also called in one body control, and there's our imperative verb. This is an imperative uh, perfect. Perfect means it's ongoing. It's something that happens constantly. So we are constantly being controlled. Interesting thing about this verb, this imperative, uh, Put on, the, the imperative put on is you put on. This verb is actually talking to peace. Peace, control him. Let yourself be controlled by peace. See, peace is commanded to be our heart's umpire. That's, that's the word he uses here in verse uh, 15 when he says control your hearts. Let peace control your hearts. Let peace be your umpire. Another image is it garrisons. It builds a fort, peace does, around your heart. Peace is the arbitrator of conflict and crisis. So if we have allowed peace to control us, if, if peace is, is doing the work it's supposed to do in our lives, then we will overcome conflict and crisis. You know, an autoimmune disease is a disease where some part of your body fights your body. In particular, an autoimmune disease is it's your immunities that recognize your body, uh, various cells in your body that are good as the enemy. So it, it takes over. Uh, an, some auto, autoimmune diseases are like multiple uh, multiple sclerosis, lupus, type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, these are all autoimmune diseases where the part of the body fights the other part of the body. 
And, and, and those are devastating diseases, right? I mean, we can agree on that. Then why do we look at a church where one part of the body fights against an, another part of the body and think that's right? And think that that's good? Just as an autoimmune disease can kill the person, one part of the body in the church fighting against another part of the body in the church will kill the church. Every time. Every time. So the church then is called to peace. And that's what he says, to this peace to which you were also called. It's not an option. Peace isn't, well, okay, if things are going good, it's peaceful. If we got enough money in the bank, it's peaceful. If there are enough people coming on Sunday morning, it's peaceful. If, if the staff's doing everything I want, it's peaceful. That is not what we are called to as a church. What we are called to is peace. And if we are not experiencing peace, if individually we are not letting peace control us, then one, body of the, uh, one part of the body is warring against another part of the body, and the church will die. That's what Paul is telling us. Then he has this statement all by itself, be thankful. Another perfect verb, ongoing, something that is happening consist continually. You are always being thankful. Every day you're thankful. Everything you go through, you are thankful. Why? Because this is a response of gratitude for what God has done. We are thankful because regardless of what's happening right now, look around. We are in, in this particular situation, a climate-controlled building all the electricity we need, all the, the, the gadgets we need. I'm not having to yell. I, I yell because I'm excited, uh, but I'm not having to yell because I'm amped. I'm microphoned up. I'm, you, we, we've got all, we've got comfortable pews. Um, did I tell you all I want to change the pews to chairs? No, I'm kidding. I just wanted to see if y'all were listening. I'm not going to, no. Uh, that's what goes, that goes back to those church splits. No, I'm not doing that. I was just, just kidding. Uh, now, got your attention again. We got everything we need. We can be thankful. But, but y'all, this morning, or actually it was seven or eight hours ago, ten hours ago maybe, over in some countries, they didn't meet with pews and climate control and electricity. They met in a, yeah, I showed you pictures of it a couple of weeks ago. They met with a thatched roof and, and poles and completely open air. And that, that room, that, that, could you call it a room? That place was packed. People worshipped because they were thankful. Why? What were they thankful for? Their thatched roof? Maybe. The, the, the lack of air conditioning? They may not even know anything about air conditioning. Never experienced it to know if they miss it or not. What they were thankful for was in the midst of wherever they were, they were worshipping a God who loved them and saved them through Jesus Christ. So they were thankful. It didn't matter what it was about. So, church, are we to be thankful amidst crisis? Yes. Church, are we to be thankful amidst uncertainty? Absolutely. Are we to be thankful amidst change? Yes, no doubt. Because we are called, we are told, we are commanded, imperative, ongoing, constantly told to be thankful. Church, do you have nothing to be thankful for this morning? Yeah, you do. Yes, you do. I don't care what's going on in your life. I mean, I, I do. Right? That sounded bad. But let me rephrase it. It does not matter what's going on in your life right now. You need to be thankful. Even for what's going on in your life. Oh my gosh, Michael, I have to be thankful for the bad things in my life. God is using them to make you somebody you aren't right now. 
Mac Brunson preached uh, at the Louisiana Convention, the last message, and, and he said, and I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase it, he said, whatever trial you're going through now is, is uh, creating, is, is developing you and preparing you for the, 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 the tragedy that's coming later. Very, very optimistic uh, part of his message. Um, Matt Brunson's pastor of First Baptist, Baptist Jacksonville, Florida, if you don't know who he is. So he said, you know, when I was in my 20s, the trials that I went through in my 20s prepared me to, for what I was going to go through in my 30s and 40s. And, and, and what I went through in my 30s and 40s, the difficulties then were getting me ready for what was going to happen to me in my 50s. And then he said, and at 59, what God is uh, doing through me right now to prepare me in my 50s must mean he is going to put me through hell in my 60s. That's what he said. And you know what? That's exactly right. I don't know what he's going to go through. I don't know what you're going to go through. But I do know whatever you are going through right now, God is using that to make you better, to bring you closer to him, to grow you in the faith, to grow you as a part of the body of the church. And the last imperative is dwell. Another imperative, ongoing verb. It happens constantly. The other commands here in this passage are only possible because of the message. Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you. Again, that imperative is actually referring to the message. Message, dwell in my people. The imperative is to the message, but the imperative is to us to allow the message to do what it is commanded to do. The message should not sound like anything Jesus didn't say. It is going to be a debate for years. Uh, homosexuality, gay marriage, we're going to be talking about this for a long time. Uh, it's just, it's here. We, we've got to learn how to handle it. But one of the ways we, we understand Scripture speaks to it, because one of the arguments against forbidding homosexuality and gay marriage is that Jesus never talked about homosexuality, and he never talked about gay marriage, and that's true. But if your message about human sexuality, if your message about marriage sounds anything, uh, it sounds at all unlike what Jesus said, then that is not his message. So, when you say gay marriage is okay because Jesus never said anything about it, you're ignoring everything he did say about marriage between one man and one woman for life, how sexuality was to be uh, contain contained and restrained within uh, a marital fellowship, marital relationship. If you ignore all those things, then you can say, well, Jesus never said anything about gay marriage. But if you are honest with what he did say, you realize Jesus is okay with gay marriage does not fit what he said. It doesn't look like anything he did say. That's just an example. There are many, many opportunities for us to discuss that as we go. This, this dwelling of the message within us leads to teaching admonishing each other, teaching each other, admonishing each other, singing uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And no, that's not a delineation, three different kinds of songs. It's just, we are here to sing. Let me tell you this, your singing is not just about you and God. It is. It is worship. But your singing admonishes and teaches the people around you. I don't care how bad your voice is. I don't care how poorly you think you sing. When you worship, you edify the person next to you. Worship is corporate. No, yes, you can worship on the boat fishing on Sunday morning, but 
not the same way you can worship you can worship corporately. There's something about coming together and singing and worshiping together that does not happen when we're by ourselves. And that's why Paul says, this is the result. If the message dwells in you, these are the things you will do. This message that dwells, teaches, admonishes, it always does it in love. Paul was big on truth. But Paul, Paul said clearly, speak the truth in love. Remember, if it doesn't sound like something Jesus would say, then it's probably not something we should say. And then he says again, with thanksgiving and grace. Uh, thanksgiving, that word actually can be translated grace. We give thanks because of the message. As a matter of fact, verse 17, whatever you do or say should be done in thanksgiving. That's what Paul says. Let me flip that around for you. Uh, the New Testament provides basic principles, not a list of rules to follow. Basic principles that, and, and maturity leads us to know God's will based on these principles. Jesus never talked about abortion, but he did talk about the value of children. He did talk about the sanctity of life. He did talk about how we aren't supposed to murder. Therefore, we can get from that principle that abortion is wrong. So we have those principles. If you can't give thanks while you do it, you shouldn't be doing it. Paul said, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus' name, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you can't give thanks while doing it, you shouldn't do it. If you can't do it to the glory of God or in the name of Jesus, you shouldn't do it. So let me ask you, can you give thanks while slandering your brothers and sisters? No. Can you give thanks while causing dissension among the church? No. Can you give thanks while gossiping, leads to slandering, gossiping, gossiping about people in the church? No. You can't do that to the glory of God. Every decision we make should pass this test. Those are just three examples of what could go on in a church. Every decision we make in life should be based on and filtered through, can I give thanks to God for what I'm doing? Can I give God glory for my attitude right now? Can I give uh, God glory for my words? Can I say what I'm about to say in the name of Jesus? If you can't, you need to get rid of it. In everything, give thanks. So we can give thanks during a crisis. We can give thanks during a church crisis because often spiritual warfare means we're headed in the right direction. Not always. Everything a church goes through is not spiritual warfare. Everything is sometimes it's just people. Now, I would, I would say it's spiritual warfare. My point is, we don't experience problems just because the church is going the right direction and a few people aren't. It's not always the case, but I do believe it is the case most often. We can give thanks during a crisis because God has seen fit to test us. God has seen fit to give us something that is going to call us to something better, something greater. We can give thanks during a crisis because the call and the message have not changed. We still have the same message. Regardless of what we're going through, regardless of what's happening, we still have a message of salvation through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And if we ever lose that message, then we are in the biggest crisis of all. We've lost our mission. We, we give thanks during a crisis because we can't sin and give thanks. So if we are going through a crisis, if there is a crisis then I need to examine what I'm doing. Can I give thanks? Can I do this in the name of Jesus? If I can't, I need to stop it. And then we find 
Thanksgiving. So this week, we're celebrating Thanksgiving. And you're going to come together with family, probably, friends. You're going to eat a lot of turkey or something. And you're going to give thanks for stuff, primarily. Let's be honest. We'll give thanks for our family, thanks for a home to live in. We'll give, give thanks for a lot of things. I will tell you this morning, you cannot experience true thanksgiving until you have a repentant, turned, changed heart toward Jesus and away from yourself. You cannot experience true thanksgiving. Oh, you can, you can be glad for what you have, but until you experience the salvation of Jesus Christ, you've not had your first thanksgiving. This week, would you have your first thanksgiving? Would you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? Would you admit that you're a sinner? The Bible says clearly that we are. Would you believe that, that Jesus is everything he said he was, that he died for your sins, he was perfect, he rose again on the third day to prove that he had overcome sin? He did that while you were a sinner, by the way, knowing that you would or could reject him, and he died for you anyway. Will you, will you confess him as your Savior? Will you cry out to him? Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But if you believe in your heart, that, uh, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Will you confess him this morning? It's as easy as A, B, C. Admit, believe, confess. We're going to take just a couple of minutes. Donald, come on up. Mindy, come on up. We're going to take a couple of minutes of, of, of response time. And maybe you need to respond to the gospel this morning. Maybe you need to give thanks in the midst of whatever crisis you're going through right now. Maybe your life is just pretty much a living hell. This morning, you need to come to the altar and say, Lord, I give thanks to you this morning that you have brought me this far, that you have me right now, and that I have your promise that you'll hold me through the end, whatever happens. Maybe you need to give thanks. Maybe you need to come and accept Christ. Maybe you need to join our church. Maybe you, there's just some things you need to pray about at this altar. During this time, let's stand. Let's do business with God. Let me pray for you, and then we'll sing. Lord, we thank you, God, that you do control everything. Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of our most de desperate situation, we can give you thanks. Lord, we, we thank you that our thanks affects our actions. Lord, that we can't give you thanks for something that is, is uh, a result of our sin. So Lord, expose that in our hearts this morning. God, whatever decision needs to be made this morning, I pray that you would lead hearts to do it, lead feet to bring them out if that's what they need to do, if they make, need to make a decision publicly. Lord, I pray that you would break every heart here this morning and then remold it into something more like what you want it to be and begin with me. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So would you respond this morning as the Lord leads?